I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. This is the first of the Disney specials that we recorded with Daniel Floyd starting in 2014. This compilation includes Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio and Fantasia. Welcome to an ongoing series of podcast reviews covering the Disney animated classics and featuring myself, Alex Shaw, my wife Sharon Shaw, and Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Beginning with Snow White in 1937, we will chart the studio's history one movie at a time. These will span out across 2015 and beyond, and will begin as considerably shorter shows than usual, but by the 1990s Third Renaissance they will expand considerably as we have more than ever to discuss. We will look at how Disney have progressed as a studio, one that without a doubt shaped the medium of animation and dominated its cinematic expression throughout the 20th century and beyond. Now the list we're going up by is the Walt Disney Animation Studios Films with Snow White at number one and Frozen at number 53. And each time we'll be answering three questions among ourselves. One, what do you like about this movie? Two, what don't you like? And three, how did it advance Disney? This allows us to put our own personal, sure to be occasionally controversial, spin on the dozens of sacred cows we have before us. But at the same time, we are trying to seek objectivity to track a studio's progression. We will have an episode entirely devoted to the evolution of the Disney princess. There are dozens of histories, documentaries, books, and DVD extras which extol the brilliance of this studio. And while we will do that often, we are blessed with the free reign to call them on their bullshit behavior where necessary, hopefully making this a relatable and relevant series. So a quick introduction before we move on to Snow White. Uh, let's see, Walt himself was born in Chicago, Illinois, 1901 raised on a farm uh very early in his life he fell in love with vaudeville and early silent movies really had a really got fascinated by entertainment uh he ended up doing some cartooning in school he studied at the art institute in chicago he tried enlisting in the army for world war one but was only 16 so he was rejected uh he later managed to get himself involved by joining the red cross american ambulance corps and arrived in france just about as the war ended as my understanding, he did a lot of drawings and paintings like inside the trucks or maybe on the trucks as well. I'm not sure while he was there. Uh, when he returned to the States, he started working in commercial art and ad companies. And it was during the 20s that he discovered and immediately fell in love with animation, which was a pretty new novelty at the time. Just uh, lots of little shorts that you might see in these theaters. I think uh, Felix the Cat mm. would have been around around that time and or or shortly after and becoming very huge. He really immersed himself in it. He started making animated cartoons on the side after work and started up a little company called Laughagrams with his friend Ub Iwerks, who was honestly probably the better animator of the two. He had a little trouble getting things off the ground and securing clients who felt like giving a lot of money to a 19-year-old. So when Laughagrams inevitably went under, he decided he was going to go to Hollywood. So at 21, with $40 in his pocket, he moved out to California. 
Uh, once he got there, he ended up founding his own studio with his brother Roy in 1923, who was the much more business-minded of the two. And they set up shop first in his uncle's garage and uh, later in some rented office spaces. And they managed to secure a deal with a New York-based distributor named M.J. Winkler for a series called The Alice Comedies, which were a bunch of mm. simple cartoons based on Alice in Wonderland, which involved a live-action actress playing Alice, uh, interacting with a lot of cartoon characters. Uh, Walt animated it all himself at first with the help of two ink and paint girls, but they eventually brought Ub Iwerks out to the studio to take over animation so Walt could focus on directing and story. Uh, the Alice comedies ran for around four years, after which Walt decided to create a completely new series that was entirely animated. Uh, he developed a new character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which was very clearly inspired by Felix the Cat, who, again, was super popular at the time. Uh, Walt created about 26 Oswald shorts over the course of a year. But unfortunately, when he approached Winkler to see about getting money for a second year of cartoons, he found that the distributor had gone behind his back and hired up most of his animation staff with the intent of, with the intent of producing Oswald cartoons without Walt's studio for less money. And more unfortunately, Winkler owned the rights to Oswald, so Walt really could not do a single thing to stop him. And this was a pretty major low point. But... Walt learned his lesson, and from that point, he ne made sure that he owned every single thing he made. So now Walt needed a new character. Fortunately, uh, his dear friend, Ub Iwerks, was still on his side, as was his wife, and the two of them developed a new character. And most accounts that I've read suggest that Ub was the one who was most responsible for his actual design. Uh, Walt originally planned to name the character Mortimer, but his wife suggested that Mickey was the better name. Uh, Ub animated two unreleased silent cartoons with Mickey, but The Jazz Singer had just come out around this time, which was the first film to feature synchronized sound, and Walt was really excited by the idea of making the first synchronized sound cartoon, so he poured all of his resources into producing Steamboat Willie, which opened in 1928 to rave reviews and made Mickey Mouse an immediate sensation, and Mickey Mouse would very quickly overtake Felix, who did not enter the sound era gracefully. Mm. Really, an, really annoying voice. <laughs> <laughs> like, like a lot of silent hey, actors, Mickey, actually. How you doing there? <laughs> no, it's 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 kind of like like one of those. I mean, you could, it's probably on YouTube. I'm sure it sounds like one of those sort of more like female actors sort of doing a male cartoon voice. Hey there, let's go out and do a like that. Really, that just sounds like, like Mickey. <laughs> it's like Mickey, but a little bit more obnoxious. See, Mickey's always struck me as like super obnoxious, like ha 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 ha, and he's got this kind of like nervous, like he's he's almost like a crackhead uh, kind of thing. <laughs> Lest we forget, most of the second half of Steamboat Willie is almost entirely Mickey Mouse being cruel to small animals, playing them like musical instruments. Oh, that's good because I thought we had a problem for a minute there, huh? All right, now get out there and make me some goddamn money. They've had difficulty in the past few decades making Mickey their, like, headline guy. And I think part of that may, may come down to his voice. He's harder to relate to than Donald, who lives a life of frustration. Sorry, Karen. It actually has, it actually has the much weirder voice of the two. Yeah, you yeah. stop to think about it. But 
yeah. But anyway, riding high on that success, Walt began to create a new series of cartoons called Silly Symphonies, each of which featured all new casts of characters, which allowed for a lot of experimentation from project to project. Mm. And these were really successful. Several of them won Oscars. Uh, The Three Little Pigs, in particular, even got listed above the feature film at a lot of theaters due to how popular it was. Uh, I mean, it was the Great Depression at this point, so America badly needed these kind of cheerful boosts. But uh, you seen the Wise Little Hen. I think the Wise Little Hen also was a one of their very successful ones. That's one of those ones was like basically everyone has to pitch in, help to pick the corn, otherwise you're going to go hungry. And that one also happened to introduce Donald Duck. Oh yeah, and Peter Pig, (laughs) who can forget? (laughs) And uh, the Grasshopper and the Ant, uh, inspiration for the A Bug's Life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, folks, check out Silly Symphonies. There is some absolute heritage in there. Yeah, lots of great old Silly Symphony stuff. Come here, son. Listen, the good book says the Lord provides. There's food on every tree. I see no reason to worry and work. No, sir, not me. Oh, the world owes us a living. Oh, the world owes us a living. <laughs> you should soil your Sunday plans <laughs> like those other foolish ants. Come on, let's play and sing and dance. But yeah, that's kind of where Disney Animation was at the time, doing lots of fun little gag-based shorts. That's what a lot of animation was at the time, um, especially once like uh, Felix came in and characters like him really kind of yeah. s- established what animation was. It was it was a fun little gags, a cool little kind of a... Uh, what's... It's kind of a I don't want to say gimmick, but it was just kind of a novelty thing. Like mm. you'd see these in you see these in theaters, these little shorts created that were kind of like newspaper comic strips come to life. Yeah, and and a lot of them were made. Like there were a lot of uh, animators at the time were comic strip artists who just kind of made the transition. Yeah. And you can kind of see that in the style too, in the way it's presented and the uh, way the kind of the all the action is staged and framed. It feels like a lot of comic strip gags kind of just again brought to life. To put it in context, for the, especially for the younger viewers who, can, who have maybe no concept of this, uh, viewers, listeners, <laughs> to put it in context, especially for some of the younger listeners, imagine a world without the internet, without TV, just the cinema as your uh, uh, outlet for visual uh, entertainment. It's the cinema and then there's the wireless at home, the radio. You'd go to the cinema, you'd pay a couple of nickels, and then you'd expect to be there for hours and they just fill the cinema with stuff to watch, like newsreels and shorts and movies and double bills. And they just it was there to keep the, the money coming in. That's why it was the golden age of cinema, because there was f- all else to do. That's the only game in town, basically. That's yeah. where you went to watch movies or anything. Yeah. And during the 30s, like Mickey was doing very well. Disney was doing very well. But um, Walt was an incredibly ambitious fellow and, and very much a dreamer as well. And... He got it in his head kind of in the mid-30s that he wanted to try making an actual full-length animated feature. Oh, yeah. And nobody else really seemed to agree that that was a good idea. He was regularly ridiculed for this idea. Most people thought that, like, again, all that you would ever see of animation in theaters and at the time was lots of little cartoon gag shorts and people told him as much that like no one is going to sit for an hour and a half of this that's Mm. just going to get exhausting and boring they were curios they were not something to emotionally engage with yeah you you did not see animated film stories so much again they were just little comic gag like uh, collections of gags yes we say that 
But that stigma still exists. It Especially kind of does. in the West. Yeah, adults do not go and see animated films unless it's a family-related film. Put it like this. Beowulf did not do gangbusters because it is, a, it is a weird to put out an animated film that's really not for kids. It definitely, there's def- definitely some growth yet to happen there. Like we're, we're not done with that kind of cultural education. Yeah. Just I mean, to- in, in, in other cultures, like so Japan, and this is just the norm. You go to see grown-up stuff in animated form, and it's just seen as any other uh, art form as accessible to all ages and as a tool for conveying this. But for some reason in the West, there's still this idea that if it's animated, it's got to be, if not directly aimed at kids then definitely accessible to kids and if it's definitely not accessible to kids alarm bells start ringing in people's heads and that's how you get uh, does not succeed these things are very expensive to produce especially and increasingly so Mm. i can definitely understand the fear of trying to take any sort of risk in that environment and create something that is not like if you're marketing something to families you're essentially marketing to nearly everybody like it there's very few people that a Pixar or DreamWorks film can't be for. But uh, if you make something that is only for adults, then you've kind of, not only have you got this cultural stigma you've got to deal with, but you've got a much smaller audience that you're trying to attract. Right. So it's, I, I can see why that it's still a thing that's not often done, it, which is absolutely a shame. But uh, from a business stance, I can definitely understand it. Yeah. It, it, so back then... There's Even an interesting worse. parallel, that's all I mean. That just in, in 37, they're like, you're never going to get grown-ups to come see a movie that's uh, entirely animated. Yeah, and, and gr- granted, a lot of them were still probably thinking, Disney's just thinking of putting together a long, silly symphony, which would have... Yeah. They were right, that probably would have been exhausting and not nearly as much fun. But, so, I mean, some people's complaints were kind of silly, like the cartoons so basically are too the bright em- and colorful. People's <laughs> eyes will hurt by the end of an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, there was that, there was that complaint in the. I listened to the the commentary going through it, compiled from archival footage, including some stuff from Walt himself. I'm trying to imagine what a full length silly symphony would be. Um, Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually still has a story and a plot, even if it is all silly and goofy. Like, gotcha. imagine all, some of these package films if they were all just one extended short. Oof. Just a single, like, or just take one of the musical sequences from Three Caballeros or something yeah. and make that one thing feature length. I guess that's what some people thought Disney was wanting to do. Which it does sound exhausting. Would have been, been that, like a that. terrible idea, yeah. yeah. But, no, Disney had a different thing in mind, and he really wanted to elevate the quality and the production value of what an animated film was as well. And so, throughout the 30s, he was basically training up his team. He was building up a team of some of the best artists. The depression was going on, so offering a good job to anybody who was an exceptional animator at the time was he was able to pull together a incredible amount of talent just from all over the country. He was pushing them constantly to get better and step it up and advance what they were able to do, both kind of as an art of animation and the believability of the way things moved and in the subtlety of the motion, but also in the tech they were using. And you can kind of start seeing it in some of the silly symphonies they made. Like, um, like if you look at the old mill in particular, it's kind of, kind of a really noticeable one right around 1937. It's the first, uh, I believe it's the first Disney film that made use of the multiplane camera, which would prove to be immensely valuable for the uh 
for animation for the animated films they would make later and also f- for really really detailed beautiful painterly backgrounds and stuff that you just had not seen anywhere else at the time so walt was really like short by short trying to push this team to be better and to just to new heights that nobody had ever seen before and i mean walt as we will be talking about a lot is very was very much the visionary type and he knew the success of these shorts wasn't going to sustain the studio forever and he already had a much bigger project in mind which was a full-length animated feature but he knew that the team wasn't quite ready for that challenge yet they hadn't really progressed their art to the degree that that it needed to be they were still Cart, like, carts, animated cartoons then were still much closer to comic strips in their simplicity. They were very flat. They were very simple characters doing mostly little wacky hijinks things. And the Silly Symphony started bring, bringing a lot more interesting stuff in that. They brought color in. Uh, they started really started painting in some incredible backgrounds and doing a lot of work with trying to bring a bit more of a realistic uh, look to stuff and a lot more of a painterly look to things. Mm. And they started trying to introduce humanoid characters who animated and moved a bit more realistically with varying degrees of success. But that was sort of the, I think the human character thing was one of the big metrics that uh, Walt was looking for. As soon as he felt that they could really do that, then they would be ready. He, ba- he basically used the Silly Symphonies as his training ground so that the team could develop some new techniques and improve the skills of, and improve their art skills. He had the animators taking life drawing classes. He was constantly pushing them to develop their skills, take the extra time, really bring something new, p- do better than they had done before. He started hiring a lot more talented animators from around the country, wherever he could find them, which was a lot easier during the Depression because nobody was working. And... Then in 1934, one night, he gathered the team together and he told them, we are going to make an animated feature. And he proceeded to pitch the story for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Want to know a secret? Promise not to tell? We are standing by a wishing well. Make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, I'm 
constant and true. So if you could narrow it down to just a few things that you personally like a lot about Snow White, we'll talk about its historical significance afterwards, but what do you personally like about it? The look that they created has got a very like, European children's storybook style, which it was a good choice for them to start with, I think. Very simple, but uh, also definitely beyond what had been done before then. I, th- I think it's a very pretty look for the film and pretty unique as well, mm-hmm. especially for the time. Some of the songs are, I mean, some of these songs are still earbugs now. <laughs> like... I don't. I mean, obviously, Snow. We have come so far from Snow White. Uh, oh, actually, many decades that have followed, but there's still like some really nice. I wouldn't probably. I wouldn't probably put much of her for her in the actual personal like category. Maybe in significance, but uh, there's some excellent character work in Snow White. Again, for considering the uh, considering the time, like some of the that the dwarves are all individually developed, and some of them have very charming, unique little personalities and ways that they're animated and. They all feel very distinct. Again, just for the time, you got seven dwarves. But, man, well, they're I more wish. exaggerated than the Hobbit dwarves, but yeah. For sure, for sure. And there's and there's still a lot of growth to do. I, partly, I guess this ties a little bit into the significance, but another thing that I really like watching the film now is that it feels, by comparison, you can kind of see the seams. It feels a bit rougher. You can tell that this is their first feature and that they're trying a lot of new stuff that's really hard and they haven't perfected it yet, but that kind of helps you see through the cracks a bit and actually appreciate what they're actually doing. You can kind of see the cells over backgrounds. You can kind of see the trickiness of the camera moves they're trying to simulate with this multiplane camera and kind of appreciate, even though it is very simple compared to what they would even be able to do 10 years later, it is for the time so complex that it is really like I really love watching it and just seeing what they have achieved by this point. It's interesting you should put it that way, actually, Dan, because that was one of the things that struck me about um, I don't know if appeal is really quite the word I want to use. But when I was watching Snow White particularly, um, and it is still evident in some of the later ones as well, what you said about the seeing the, the background cells through the. Uh, the character cells, the fact that you'd get this little, um, these ripples of texture that you could see through the character's clothes, especially if the colours were particularly light. Um, And as they were moving, you can see the fact that the the background texture behind them doesn't change. And it is almost like looking at um, a really intricate uh, outfit where you can see the stitching and as a result you can see how intricate that stitching is and how um, how skilled the tailor has to be to be able to put those things together. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is something that I think these days, because you've got such a polished effect, 
um, it's you you don't get that, especially not in something that's uh, that's CG animated. It's very true, and you it's which is I mean good because you're not thinking about how it's being being made. You're lost in the what's actually being presented to you. Which I mean, it's like a lot of those good. If you're really good at certain jobs in film, people will not know at all that you were there and what you did because you Absolutely. did such a great job. Yeah, but, but, but in the sense of looking back and sort of trying to pick apart how these things were put together, you need to be able to see the seams. You need to be able to see the line drawings underneath and that kind definitely. of thing. Oh, I, I, can, I can say right now what I really, really like about Snow White. Um, grumpy. <laughs> I didn't realize it until I, st- I saw it um, twice recently. Uh, for in preparation for this but he's the only character i can relate to in the entire story i think it's just because everybody's so super chirpy or like the evil queen just like utterly despicable and and and, uh impossible to relate to grumpy is the only character that has an arc he goes from being grumpy to realizing that he genuinely cares for somebody which ultimately is the exact opposite of being very very selfish and that's all it's a very simple story for him but Snow White is not changed when she comes out of it. And he is. That's a good point. He is about the only one that really does have a full character arc. It's not a very character-based or driven story, really. And I'll go you one further. And I realize this only on the most recent time we watched it, mere minutes before we started this podcast. Grumpy Shrek... That's what Shrek is. Shrek is grumpy rescuing the princess instead of the prince. That's a good observation. I like that. We'll obviously go into far more detail on this during A, the uh, princess episode of Disney, and the uh, we're going to be doing Shrek podcasts at some point. Uh, but Shrek is instrumental in the changing the f- way that fairy tales and princesses are portrayed in cinema. And... At its core, you got Grumpy, who has the same arc as Shrek, sort of. Only Shrek's is more, is deeper. And in fact, with Shrek the musical, is deeper still. That then leads us around to what I'm not keen on in uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is that it's incredibly shallow. It is that. It, it is that, and I definitely won't argue that point. It feels like the, like the star of the movie is not any one of the characters it is really just the fairy tale itself like check it out like this is a fairy tale illustrate like illustration from the storybook that we have brought to life for you like snow white herself is while very sweet and nice also quite bland most of the dwarves are not terribly distinct or and they don't almost nobody has an arc really of any of any description it's it's not character based at all it's very much like here is the story tale the fairy tale Mm. playing out before you and just kind of, and you can still kind of feel watching this one especially, the um, the old gag short like uh, origins of what Disney had been doing before. There's a lot of it feels like it's kind of broken up into a lot of um, musical like song sequences, a lot of which are very gag based. And the, the, and the story washing, kind of washing ties the together. hands before lunch seems to take yeah, yeah. ages. The yodeling sequence feels like hours sometimes. Yeah, like it's like a bunch of little silly symphonies kind of strung together by a common story that a larger theme. You can sort of feel Disney trying to figure out, all right, how do we take what we've been doing and convert this into a full film story hmm. type thing? And they, and they don't. It's not completely successful. I think it's a great start, but it's 
I think it's actually the next film that where they will actually figure out how to do it right. It is a but, very stripped down version of that fairy tale. You know, even even the the basic Snow White story is more intricate than the one that they tell. But I think the focus here is very much on um, the mechanics of telling a story in animation yeah. that is feature length, and then in being sort of tied up in that, they they haven't really got the capacity at this stage to focus on the actual story that they're telling. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, it didn't need to be super in-depth. It just had to exist. And it, it, for what it actually managed to achieve, it blew everyone out of the water. And it, it was massively, massively important as a step forwards. Uh, all of the depth and, uh, the, you know, you can judge it by modern standards against all the, the, the later Disneys and it doesn't really hold up. But the fact that it was able to come out of the gate and not just be a laughable, boring mismanaged wreck of a film. Do you know what it actually reminds me of a little bit? You know when we were watching Apollo 13 Mm -hmm. and we were basically, not to any great extent, but laughing at the primitive nature of the switches and and readouts and um, dials that they had in their cockpit and the fact that they were, it was possible to do the calculations that they needed to make their flight longer. On a slide rule, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, from this position, it's very easy to look back and say, how ridiculous, how on earth did they manage to, you know, fly to the moon in things that were built like that? But they did. Yeah. It's the step. In video game terms, have a guess at which game this most reminds me of in terms of stepping forwards and going, now this is going to be our dot, dot, dot. I'd say it's either like the early Pong or early Mario. I was actually going to say The Legend of Zelda. That's not a bad comparison either, actually. Well, um, yeah. there, were, there, were, there were many games before Legend of Zelda that were actually full-length games that uh, were uh, proper adventures. Legend of Zelda was the first one that sort of grabbed and captured the West, at least, and said, hey, and, and obviously Japan, too and uh, took them for the adventure that, that would really stick with them and really have an impact. I like that better. That's Yeah, like the early Pong and pre-Nintendo era stuff is kind of like all these the shorts and the early experiments and figuring out what animation is. Yeah. But it's, the, it's a lot of those early Nintendo NES games that really just set the tone for everything that follows. I suppose you could call uh, Super Mario Brothers Steamboat Willie. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, on the whole, though, the pacing of Snow White... Just as a film and by modern standards, very slow, very uh, not a whole lot happens, but it's still it's still very charming. It's a fun little light watch. And I imagine at the time, given the Great Depression was happening, a film like this that was very cheerful and light and all that was a welcome distraction. Also, if you compare it to everything else released in 1937. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, even the best films of 1937 are not exactly going to engage most people, let alone children, by today's standards. So it's, uh, you know, it, you, again, it's very important to look at it in context. And it, it does still, to a degree, hold up today. It is, I mean, Lyra was watching it, fairly transfixed, wasn't she? Pretty much. Yeah. Women. Courage, men. Courage. Don't be nervous. It's wet. Oh, it's 
code, too. We ain't going to do it, are we? Well, it'll please the princess. (laughs) I'll take a chance for her. Me, Me too. too. (laughs) Her wiles are beginning to work. But I'm warning you. You give them an inch, and they'll walk all over you. Don't listen to that old warthog. Come on now, man. Oh, I can you scrub. Are you digging the tub? You have to watch where it doesn't show. No, no, no. Don't get excited. Here we go. Step up to the tub. Hey, no disgrace. Just pull up your sleeves and get them in place. Then scoop up the water and rub it on your face and go... Finally, we can't talk about the princess much because we're saving her for the princess show. However, we can talk about the prince. Oi. <laughs> or we could if there was anything to say. Yeah, the the prince in Snow White is um, is disastrous. He's a total drip. And um, I don't think there are many uh, girls of any age uh, these days who would actually find him uh, the, the kind of the dreamboat prince that he's supposed to be. I don't know what the 1930s American women were looking for in a <laughs> prince. Maybe he fits the bill perfectly. I don't know. <laughs> but, I but th- yeah, he's, he's bland as they come. Yeah, he does sort of fall into that template of the guy that you adore because everybody's told you that he's adorable. You don't actually know him. You don't know anything about him. You've never spent mm. any time with him. But everybody says he's a good match. So, hey, why not? His name's charming. He must be great. Was he Prince Charming or was that the one I- from Cinderella? I don't even remember. <laughs> I think he's just the prince. That's I think he is just the prince. He's, yeah, he's the prince who comes. Uh, yeah, someday her prince will come. And yeah. The, yeah. I mean, by comparison, Snow White at least gets, you know, you, you find out that she cares about people. She's maternal. She's neat. She it's likes animals. <laughs> she yeah, animals travel. like her. But, uh, but the prince, with, with the way he turns up in that, like, I think the thing that's creepy about him, he's totally oblivious to the fact that the way he intrudes upon her singing is creepy. He's totally oblivious to the fact that the way he intrudes upon her coffin is really creepy. I forgot about the whole coffin intrusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, yeah, Prince, like, uh, I give him a one out of, ten, <laughs> out of ten in terms of princes. Yeah. He's about the most rubbish a prince can get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? If he was worse than he is, that would be something. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. He's ultimately just like with everything with this film and with a lot of the early Disney uh, fairy tale based films, the star is more often the fairy tale itself than yeah. the yeah. characters. So he like who who is the prince? So he's the he's the prince who shows up and he like that that's literally all he is. The prince. Mm. The prince who shows up. One in, like, inter- song. I have but one song. <laughs> 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 yeah. Like, he never introduces himself, comes in, sings, says hello. Buggers off again. Dis- disappears until the end when he's supposed to show up because that's when the prince shows up and does the thing he does that features in the story. And then that's the last. I mean, that's that's as much as we care about him because that's all he's there to do in the fairy tale which is what this movie wants to be showing us and fortunately princess started becoming bit by bit more interesting film by film <laughs> over time slowly. yeah this is the foundation they work their way up from but yeah he's uh 
yeah, the fact that I couldn't w- remember even whether he was Prince Charming or the <laughs> Prince or anything. I, I, yeah, I. <laughs> on the other hand, the, the Wicked Queen is is pretty uh, excellent. They're uncompromising in how um, uh, she's scary and not funny. And yeah, she stands out. She's got some charm to her, at least in being kind of a just really cartoonish evil villain yeah, yeah. sort. And the, the 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 two guises as well. You know, she's she's horrible and, and ugly inside when she's just the sort of the beautiful austere queen, and she's just as horrible and ugly as as the horrible ugly old woman. But she has a little bit more character there, and, and yeah. that, that itself has sort of like the the, the creepy old warty faced woman uh, offering you red apples. That's about as iconic as it gets. But what they get wrong for the, uh, I mean, I suppose they just they play it straight laced with both the hero. The villain and the uh, the princess, and again, this achieves exactly what they set out to do. You know what this movie is? This movie is a parent sit like sitting on the bedside of a kid as the kid goes to sleep and telling them a story. Yeah, and and it's a kid. As and maybe by it's the like numbers the, as that entails. Yeah, it's like here, and then the prince showed up and kissed her, and they all lived happily ever after. And maybe maybe the parent telling it has a good sense of humor, so that when the dwarfs come in, they start like having some kind of fun and have, having some little bits and gags and the, these oh these dwarves have their personality this one's grumpy and this one's dopey but it's still just like at the end of the day it's just very basically telling here is the fairy tale enjoy yeah this is what you know this is the first one you start with and then everything after that is uh uh it's some building upon this structure or diverging from this structure especially these yeah. days yeah yeah this one is but pretty much the by the numbers idea yeah. that the rest build, build from. Which, if you think about it, is kind of essential because you can't subvert until you have the standard to yeah. subvert. Yeah, very true. We will never, ever argue how important or uh, significant this film is. It's quite boring to watch that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Snow White. Ain't no trick to get rich quick. If it ain't dig, dig with a shovel or a pick. In a mine, 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 where a million diamonds shine. We dig, 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 dig from early on till night. We dig, 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 dig up everything inside. We dig up diamonds, pilots, corn, thousand rubies, sometimes born. But we don't know what we dig them for. We dig, 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 dig. Pinocchio, 1940. Uh, Dan, what do you like about Pinocchio? Actually, having now watched it again and knowing its historical, like at the context it was released in, I like like a lot about Pinocchio. Pinocchio okay, quickly turned into one of my actual. I don't know if I'd rank it among favorites. I feel like I want to finish watching the rest of these first, but it's I like it way way more than I used to because in watching Pinocchio, I realized for the first time what an incredible leap Disney had made in terms of technical and artistic capability 
from Snow White even. These guys were, there was no hard set study for animation up to this point. These guys were basically figuring it out as they went how to do animation well and how and just figuring this craft out. The fact that in 10 years they basically figured out everything that I have now studied to do my job today by themselves is astounding. But also that just between these two films, a few years apart, the huge strides forward like oh, yeah. in character animation, the, in effects animation, the way they stage the action doesn't feel like a short anymore. It feels like now they're imitating film. The A lot of the kind of camera angle, simu- like a simulation they do like the entire monstro sequence the way it's cut together it feels very film-like and very effective that's it's a charming story it's got really charming music and the production value on this film like you really i feel like you really feel disney's perfectionism watching this one it feels like they made an absurd amount of money on snow white like if you if you don't adjust for inflation it's still the most successful animated film like box office ever it allowed them to buy their burbank studios that that basically paved the way for disney itself yeah it it made disney animation a thing he staffed up big time he did and he put a lot of money into pinocchio as a follow-up and you could tell he was like all right we're gonna make a lot of money from these things let us make this perfect let us just pour as much money as we need to to make this film awesome and, and it's a lot it, trickier as well because the original uh, Snow White uh, fairy tale, they could boil it down to the simple lines, which it was. Um, but Pinocchio is a book and it's got a very set story and one thing leads to another and each it's episodic and everything has some sort of uh, relevance to Pinocchio's journey. So they were, to a degree, far more constricted by their adaptation of that than they were with Snow White. Definitely. And I think it helped because I mean, Pinocchio feels a lot leaner and a lot more story focused than Snow White does as well like Less it's uh, procrastinating with dance and singing routines there's still yeah. a few with the clocks and the, and the jumping out a little wooden boy <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure but it does move along at much more of a quick clip and it's uh just the disney just sunk so much money into this thing and it's really watching it now it is really like a joy to watch like fine like i went back and i watched like okay snow white the dwarves chasing the witch up the mountain before she dies and to kind of murder her at, with pickaxes yeah yeah for kids um, <laughs> so like watching that and looking at just technically what they achieved is all right some very cool shots some very fancy lighting very beautiful painting some pretty good animation here and but then looking at that compared to the monstro sequence in pinocchio and it looks like this was 10 to 20 years apart. Like the leap forward in yeah. craft and in the way it's staged and everything is just, and in how exciting and really tense it is, is just astounds me now. Little wooden head, go play your park. Bring a little joy to every heart. Little do you know, and yet it's true that I'm mighty proud of you. Little wooden feet and best of Structurally and in, in just sheer appearance, Pinocchio far better resembles the later Disney's than Snow White does. Right. I just I never realized until watching these now how much progress they made so quickly. 
and set the tone with it. Um, yeah. My personal favorite bits I like as well. Honest John, the uh, Fox <laughs> character, he's basically Mr. Burns. If you actually watch his uh, his his behavior, especially since Mr. Burns uh, appears to have a cultural reference point around about 1940, maybe slightly before then. So it's like he stopped there and has basically been an uh, honest John, uh, but you know, but immortal and somehow carried. Before carry he got huge, his yeah. early wheeling, dealing, scamming days. Um, and he's perfectly characterized in a single little feature of his costume. And can you guess which one I'm thinking of here? Is it the, like the hole in the glove? Yes, the yeah. fingertip hole. He's got a little tiny patch of his glove missing, which shows that he's got these airs and graces and these fancy white gloves, but there's a hole in it, and it's it it's it's kind of like you can see the shyster underneath, uh, and it it doesn't take much exploration to see it. But it, to the casual, wide-eyed Pinocchio type guy, he might seem like a fancy actor. But he hasn't what... even noticed that he's yeah. got a hole in his glove. No, of course. Yeah, because <laughs> because he's not looking for those little details. An actor's life for me. An actor's life for me. A wax mustache and a beaver coat. A pony cart and a billy goat. An actor's life is fun. You wear your hair the pompadour. You ride around in a coach and four. You stop and buy out a candy store. An actor's life for me. I did the be An actor's life for me. A high silk hat and a silver cane. A watch of gold with a diamond chain. I did the day. An actor's life is gay. It's great to be a celebrity. An actor's life for me. I wonder what led to the decision to make Honest John and I forget the name of his Gideon. counterpart. Gideon. Gideon, right. The decision to make them anthropomorphic animals in a otherwise human world in which nobody no- seems to notice or care. Yeah, it's like you're turning into a donkey. Not that much of a problem, actually. There's a cat that wears clothes. <laughs> it's, that's actually a <laughs> And the cat can't even talk. As I was watching it, Half of my brain was kind of reading them as allegories anyway. So, like, everybody else in this world doesn't see them as a fox and a cat. We see them as a fox and a cat because that's their personality traits coming through. Yeah. And the when the boys all turn into donkeys on Pleasure Island, they're not really turning into donkeys. They are simply being boxed up and shipped off as slaves. But we're seeing them being turned into donkeys because that characterizes what's happening to them. Honest John gives a priceless puppet to uh, Stromboli uh, and gets a small bag of gold in return. It's like, that's how much of a wheeler dealer he really is. <laughs> Stromboli should have gone, bloody hell, I'm talking a fox! And grabbed him as well. <laughs> that is a fine point. Actually, the, I would say that what appealed to What about your most... cat? Oh no, he only wears the pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he can't talk. Um, what, what appealed to me the most about Pinocchio, particularly in comparison to Snow White, was the fact that there is a journey here, that there is oh, a yeah. character who goes from A to B to C, and that it it's actually um, – there aren't that many – Disney stories that follow this particular arc, which is that Pinocchio is essentially naive and lazy and selfish, not in a a really horrible way, just in the way that children are, Um, because when you're tiny, the world doesn't really exist outside your own focus. Um, And it's, it's presented to him that if he wants to become a real boy, read grown up human being, he's going to have to learn 
to be unselfish and to care about other people than himself and and uh, other things than his own gratification and he does go through that journey yeah snow white doesn't even approach that she gets she doesn't get told to do anything and she doesn't do anything she technically she mothers the dwarves and gives them a bit more of a uh, a, a lifestyle an organized lifestyle than they've managed before she makes them wash their hands and she gives goose, uh, gooseberry pie to Grumpy. Save it for the princess show. I know. I know. <laughs> but, no, unfortunately, sorry. we can't talk about character arcs without pointing out that she's a princess. But um, uh, I will say the transformation scene uh, when Lampwick turns into a donkey is fantastic, even today. It's like the American Werewolf in London transformation scene for kids. Where, yeah, yeah. Still, really oh scary. god yes it is he's he, yeah because he's so terrified in that yeah. scene he's totally compass mentis throughout the whole thing he can see his humanity dribbling away and turns into he, he can't talk at the end as well he, so he's just basically a braying simpleton but it's it's ugh. Yeah, just just watching that, it's it's extremely masterfully handled, and uh, I think uh, one of the uh, animators talking about it to compare it to Hitchcock in terms of uh, the the attention, because as Lampwick's transforming bit by bit into a donkey, he's unaware of it. Ears first, then tail. It's Pinocchio's reactions to him, and it's like, uh oh, uh oh, something's going on here. And then he's like, he looks at the uh, the drink, throws the drink away, looks at the cigarette. Kids smoking and drinking and doing Fight Club, I might add as well. <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, that that whole scenario is is pretty terrifying. And the worst thing, and I said this to Lyra, no comeuppance for those guys. Pinocchio nope. does not foil that. You would not make a movie like that today where Pinocchio wasn't morally obliged to stop the trafficking of children. That is quite a loose end to leave. They totally <laughs> get away with it. Yeah. That, that guy's like, no one comes back. As boys, <laughs> and Lawrence John's like, yes, happy to do business with you. Um, so the other thing I love about it is uh, Monstro the whale. The, uh, the that whole sequence, it's the, the monster, the, the immensity of that thing, and the uh, the fact that they have to animate the water, which I gather is quite difficult to animate. Yeah, yeah. That, that's part of what makes my jaw drop looking at that. Just to give them the scale, yeah, given the scale and how much they do and how complex a lot of the water and the splashes are and the movements of the water and the waves and the characters moving and acting on top of that and being affected by it. That's, that's super complex stuff. Yeah. Even now that's super complex to do. And it, it's the second animated feature ever. And their second and their first time trying anything like that. And it's probably some of the best looking water Disney's ever done. Honestly, I'm amazed this did not do huge, huge money. Why didn't it? I mean, 40 uh, means it was, it was in the middle of the depression. There was that, so that didn't help. There was also because Europe had bigger Hitlery problems to deal with. Hitlery that, problems, that's a good word, wasn't it? <laughs> we ain't got time for Pinocchio, chaps. We've got Hitlers to deal with. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a. I mean, Europe was even then a good chunk of the of the audience that Disney yeah. would have to distribution appeal. was became strangled between between these years, definitely. So you basically, could not count on that audience anymore, mm. and. And honestly, he sank so much more money into this film. It was going to have to make a big amount of money back to, yeah. uh, to, to make it back. And so it ended up being pretty unsuccessful at the time. Obviously, long term, very successful, as with all of these early Disney films. But um, yeah, it, at the time, definitely a big hit financially to the studio. Yeah. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. 
When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeeze, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell, Jiminy Cricket, right. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. Um, Sharon, uh, because you can probably sum up m- many of my issues, do you want to say if any problems you have with Pinocchio? Um, well, I think the, the, the biggest one for me, um, and it, it took me by surprise, actually, I wasn't expecting this, but there is a, shall we say, a degree of elitism in uh, the whole segment with the, uh, the boys being taken off to Pleasure Island. You've got this um, mass of... Uh, if you look at it closely, very obviously poverty-struck kids. I mean, all of their shoes and their clothes are tatty as hell and full of holes. They clearly do not have particularly um, uh, well-cared-for uh, backgrounds or, or, you know, households that, that have um, money and the ability to support them. And yet... I think I spotted Tony Costa in there somewhere. Yeah, Philip Pullman was making notes. There's, there's almost an Oliver sensibility about it all, yeah, Oliver Twist yeah. going on there. But there's still this overarching tone of they deserve what they get because they're being seduced by the prospect of drink and smoke and pool. And, um, you know... <laughs> being able to play all the time and not ever having to take any responsibility. Well, you see, if you'd gone to school like good boys, then you'd be all right, wouldn't you? And it's like, have you seen what's happening to them? He is in a box labelled salt mines. Nobody deserves that. This is, of course, not helped by the fact that Jiminy keeps lecturing Pinocchio the whole way through and sounding like the sort of guy that you really don't want to follow, follow that moral path because it sounds boring. Yeah, but not not just boring, impractical, unrealistic. Um, yeah, they they do kind of hit the Protestant work ethic a little bit. You also too hard. had a few issues with race, racial depiction. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let if you, you could talk. summarize quickly, we're running tight for time on Pinocchio. Sure, sorry. Right, I'll let you talk about racist duck. But um, for me, <laughs> it was. Uh, it was the uh, the characterization of Stromboli, who managed to insult Italians, uh, Romani people, fairground owners, um, and people of a heavier set disposition, all in one go. Nice. Which I thought was quite impressive. That's a quadruple whammy. It is. Yeah, he, he reminds me a little bit of Watto. Yeah. Yeah, Pinocchio, yeah, so you come the, here. Yeah, the Jewish insults in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. He's a bit Fagin-ish. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of issues um, around this time and uh, there are a couple of uh, censored Disney films which we're going to be talking about uh, where you could put it down to uh, them being racially ignorant, racially, not, not racially intolerant so much as just not... Unaware. Uh, yeah, not having any clue that in a few years' time, maybe even immediately there... People will be watching this stuff and slapping their heads and going, seriously, you put that up there? And then in decades from now, you'll be going, you cannot put this stuff in kids' movies. Racist Duck is actually only there for a a brief half second. And uh, people tend to make a big fuss about the crows in Dumbo. We'll be talking about them in a second. Racist Duck is a puppet in Stromboli's shop. 
it's it's just part of the background. It's not even animated, but it's it's a, it's a tribeswoman. She's got like um, grass skirt and like sort of uh, bobbles on her feet and big a big red bill resembling oversized lips, and it's kind of like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even see that in the background. Keep an eye out for racist dogs. There we go. (laughs) But once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. It's not actually a problem inherent to Pinocchio so much as a problem inherent to the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of that in early Disney. Also, Geppetto's a quitter. He gives up way too easily on everything. It's not really uh, a problem with the uh, the film. Uh, It just shows that Pinocchio has to push that little bit harder and a little bit further. And I suppose it is good characterization for the, the kid. Um, also, they had Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, in the studio, voicing the cat Gideon. And at the last minute, they decided, let's make him mute. I would the only like... time they ever got him in the studio, yeah. <laughs> and they didn't use it. What the hell? I mean, that's, again, not really a problem. He could have sucked, but we'll never know now, will we? Nope. Well, the hiccup's still in there. Yeah, he, he does get a hiccup. I think that was Mel Blanc's hiccup. Yep. <laughs> it would be nice if he actually talked only in a Bugs Bunny voice. Um, Do we have time for me to quickly ask Dan the particle animation question? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Talking about the animation of water, Dan, yeah. um, we were discussing this while we were watching Fantasia today. Is the reason that animating things like fire and fog and dust and water are so complex that it's it's basically about animating thousands and thousands and thousands of molecules that all have to be doing their own thing. Yeah, essentially. And especially, I mean, doing it in hand-drawn animation when you're just having to kind of approximate it and make it look right and real, a very complex thing to do and actually make look right. Even today, still, even though we can run a lot of simulations, uh, just physics-wise, to kind of get us a lot of the way there for things like water, it's still a really complex uh, task to perform. We've gotten to the point now where in film, like oceans and water and all that stuff can be in there and you won't even think about it. It just looks right. Like the uh, helicarrier coming out of the water, like just all that looks right. But that is so much an incredible amount of work to get looking proper and correct. And it's, yeah. it's, I, I saw some, some guys uh, at one point when it's back at Pixar, some of the guys who worked on life of Pi came in and just kind of showed some of their tech demo for what they did to be able to get realistic oceans that you could still directly control, like when a wave hit from where and what controlled basically the image at any given time, the composition, while still making it look like realistically what an ocean would do with water is just staggeringly complex what they had to figure out. And so the fact that they can make like the ocean movements and waves and all that look this good in the 30s, the 1940 by hand, they is mind-blowing. back at my notes for these earlier films we were doing I, I wrote maybe like 
eight or nine bullet points for all these earlier ones compared to the pages. Yes. <laughs> Partly just because of the, our, our, we eventually gave up the structure of, all right, let's not record 10 of these at once. Let's do, let's do them one or two at a time. So I started actually going much more in depth and coming up with stuff to say, but man. Yeah. Or like seven things about all of Fantasia. That's ridiculous. It seems like a big ask, and it almost like if we were going to go back, we should really just do them one per week. But uh, Christ, I, I don't think I could talk about Fantasia for t- for the customary hour and a half to two hours. I think the half hour we even ended up getting before recording this extra bit, it mm. feels like the right amount because they're just with these earlier films. There is plenty to say but there's not so much substance to the film that you could be digging in for hours and hours on it like we are not going to run to three hours even when you're saying you're just going to do two on dumbo there's lots of lovely things to say about dumbo but you don't have to talk for two hours about it whereas i think we talk at length on those later ones because we really want to yeah one exception to that would actually be pinocchio i feel like we i could feasibly write an essay about the uh the simple mechanics of a puppet wanting to be a real live boy and why that genuinely appeals to us and has made it uh, an immortal story. That's true. We could probably dig into some of these a bit more. Cinderella could probably get a little bit more, mm. some of these uh, handful of these other ones. But by the, po- by the time we were getting to these later 60s films, we were talking longer about them. Oh, no, actually, I was, I was putting, this is a bit for the end of Pinocchio. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> sorry. See how I worked into it, though, very, very seamlessly. Genuine question, by the way. Does that mean that Pinocchio counts as the first sci-fi story? He's like a wooden cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> I think Surely it, sci-fi a, existed it, before the 40s. No, he's a no, golem. No, no, I don't, I don't mean Pinocchio the film, because okay. Pinocchio, Pinocchio the, the story yeah. has been Good around point. for a lot longer than No, that. but the, the concept of... Uh, um, uh, a, a creature of being made and then having a spark of life put in it has been around for a long time before that. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Yes, the, 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 right. the, um, but then again, the golem is not a character that is uh, possessed of that much of a, 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 not that I've in mythology I've read, it doesn't yearn to be human. It doesn't have a soul. It's animated by God. Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, Pinocchio is a real life boy. This is what really bothered me when I was uh, I was a kid. It's like he is real. He's just made of wood. Yeah. The only difference between him is is his uh, physical form, his metabolism. And there's so many drawbacks to actually being human that being a, a wooden puppet can you know. There's many many scenarios where if Pinocchio was human, he'd die. When he's searching for Geppetto, he'd just drown. Yeah, you could swim forever. Why do you want to be real? Yeah. And also. How do we define real at this point? If Pinocchio's talking, Pinocchio's thinking, Pinocchio's wishing to be real, is not Pinocchio real and alive? I think and a boy. What he wants is to be meat. Yeah, no, but he is. I guess that even in the film, he is, in a practical sense, he is as real at the beginning as he is later when he is made into. Like a real meat flesh boy. and blood Super boy, meat like boy, if you will. Flesh. <laughs> his his I mean, his interaction and the loving relationship he shares with Geppetto yeah. and his interaction with everyone else in the household. He may look like a lot more of the objects around the room, mm. but he functionally, like the re- in the relationships, he is the same. But I mean, basically, it's the the the, the meat versus wood is incidental. Uh, in he's grown, he's had an arc. 
This yes. is why he beats Snow White hands down every time. He's actually changed as a person and become less of a selfish little goit. Snow White doesn't really change. In fact, we don't even really have any evidence that she's going to turn down the next poisoned apple that comes her way. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Snow White, really. I mean, even her naivety is seen as charming. Of course, there's plenty wrong with Snow White by today's standards, but in taken at face value, Snow White doesn't need to change. Pinocchio is basically presented with, like, you're presented with uh, a norm, which is horrible little child. Isn't he cute, but aren't kids selfish little buggers? And then basically, slowly, he has to go through attrition. And um, in the longer stories of Pinocchio, he goes through even more. In in the, uh, I actually remember watching an animated series of Pinocchio when I was a, a kid, where he actually gets crucified. Now, we could argue the relative merits of what it means to string a wooden puppet out on a crucifix in the sun in the desert for hours on end, all we want. But ultimately, it's the journey of the soul that Pinocchio's on. Pinocchio, um, motherfuckers, we're out. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Um, Okay, right. Anything else about Pinocchio? Jiminy Cricket. We've not really mentioned that he actually, for a long time with Disney, was like a mascot for them. I mean, basically, I think until Tinkerbell came along, he was Disney's go-to guy when it wasn't going to be Mickey. If they were going to, like, Jiminy Cricket was... am Am I imagining this? Oh, no, he definitely, he reappeared pretty frequently. He was in one of those... uh, Awful. He was in one of those... Awful. uh, (laughs) (laughs) The wartime ones, I'm sorry. Yes, he was in one of the wartime ones. It's either... Which one is it? I have it written down. It's Footloose and Fancy Free. Uh, Fun and Fancy Free. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was in uh, Fun and Fancy Free later, just because he was that sort of uh, Disney mascotish character. And he is yeah. a really lovable, appealing character, too. He could have been super annoying. And in probably some incarnations in certain films and bits, mm. he has been super annoying, I'm sure. Yeah. But because that kind of character handled poorly gets super annoying really fast. But yeah. there's a lot of appeal to the way he moves around and kind of a, a little bit of a vaudevillian showmanship to his performance and the way he swings that umbrella around like a cane with, with the hat and he he's pretty lovable i can see why he stuck around yeah also the the two-man uh, dynamic of him with uh, pinocchio and like him uh, being the shoulder angel and pinocchio being this out of out of control little id the shoulder devil himself just ch- charging around doing whatever the hell he wants and kind of like saying oh i'm gonna listen to you jiminy and totally not again it's so much more dynamic than snow white Wandering around going, Oh, a shadow, it might attack me! The historical significance of Pinocchio, I think we've already we covered a bit it to begin with, um, and, but let's go back to that 
they gave them tenure as a studio because it, it proved that they could do it twice. Um, it introduced the magic. Now, magic's in Snow White, but if you remember, most of it seems to involve the Wicked Queen trying to kill Snow White. So it's it's less about wonderful things happening and more about relief that the magic has actually ended when uh, she's woken up by True Love's kiss. The the fairy dust and the blue fairy and the touching Pinocchio with the wand and that sort of starburst effect and the the when you wish upon a star that stuff and the fairy stuff and the wishing upon a star and the what we want to be and you know how we want the world to be and and if we wish hard enough and we push then maybe our dreams will come true that is wholly begun in Pinocchio absolutely when you wish upon a star is basically the disney anthem now still to this day yeah. when when star wars episode 7 comes out it will have when you wish upon a star to begin with <laughs> that's oddly appropriate <laughs> actually it is just as an animator watching this too i am impressed by looking at snow white like and this is very much craft of animation stuff but looking at like animations of dwarves the characters that aren't kind of carefully following a live action rotoscope sort of thing like the like snow white and the and the prince like their kind of animation is appealing and they've all got charm but it's very busy they're moving pretty much constantly there's like they don't they will not stay in a pose for very long usually it's very just lots of chaos but looking at like i was loved watching jiminy cricket kind of even just from the beginning and this one to come in cuz even just in the craft of character performance and animation they are they came a long way like uh look like he will hit a pose you can see a subtle like um you can see subtle gestures and subtle expression changes and he's really acting honestly for the first time they're not like tr- they're not basically kind of following a actor's performance or kind of doing a lot of really chaotic sort of big grand gestures there's actual acting happening to a much greater extent in this movie which as an animator i just loved watching i can't not say acting yeah yeah very much and it's still very like the uh kind of crossover from like the infusion of acting and drama and performance into what animators do was kind of happening more and more around this time and much more so as time passed but uh because animators are essentially kind of actors just we are working from the outside in as opposed from the inside out and uh yeah, so it's just a pleasure for me just knowing that, like, just that there's an animator behind this performance I'm watching and I'm seeing, just seeing them grow, just to me, for, for all of these movies, it's just so cool. When you wish upon a star, make no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come.
like a boat out of the blue. Fate steps in and sees you through one inch upon a star. Your dreams come Fantasia. Okay, so picture the scene. It's 1940, February, and Pinocchio's just come out. Now in November, less than a year later, Fantasia, another extremely expensive production, comes out. And it's Walt Disney deciding, right, we are going to give people a whole new cinematic experience. They will be able to see music and hear pictures. And he was just basically... He was trying to create something brand new and experimental, and it kind of worked. But it was not anywhere near as lucrative in the returns to begin with. And it's a kind of a troubling film to actually watch, even to this day. Challenging is the best way of putting it, the most complimentary I've heard it. This is why I love Walt Disney just as a guy. It's like I love his pure, gutsy ambition, like... Even when his his gambles don't pay off as often as they do, but like, just okay. So he's on the heels of a really in, incredibly successful but super risky venture that was Snow White, mm-hmm. and then he decided, oh, and he's got an even more expensive, like much more expensive follow up film in the works, and he decides that now for film three is the perfect time to do something completely different, <laughs> really <laughs> artsy, innovative, super expensive that they have to build, they have to invent and build entirely new sound systems for theaters for this yeah. movie to work. Most that, like, theaters of which were not able to actually support. Was it Fanta sound or something like that? Yeah, so I think that's what it was called. It's just abs- like he's not content to settle in with like, all right, I did it. <laughs> like we, he's he decides that let's go ahead and spend tons and tons of money on a new risky thing. Mm. It's like I experimental would love to... and expensive. That's those two very rarely come together in a very successful way. Yeah, like and I mean, Walt is all about, and you can really see it in this one, creating an experience like it is no surprise to me that this guy went on to make theme parks Mm. i would have loved to see what disney would have made of video games if he was alive when they were around have you ever actually sat and watched him talk about epcot and what he wanted that to be i've seen heard bits and pieces i've like not ever looked into it too deep Uh, well basically uh, bits of walt disney ended up inside tony stark and oh, very much. Well, by way of Howard Stark and, and, of course, Howard Hughes was in there as well. But the idea of being able to see the future and visualize that, uh, it, it takes somebody with a peculiar drive. By all accounts, and let's call him on, on, on this, he doesn't sound like the nicest person. No. But <laughs> it, he was absolutely the, what Disney Studios required to get them off to a flying start. Yeah, definitely the visionary type and bold enough to actually act on it and throw a ton of money at something if he thought it could work. Yeah. So what what do you like about Fantasia itself, Dan? I mean, it is technically very impressive and beautiful in a lot of ways. And it is a very different kind of experience. It's much more highbrow attempted. Like he's trying to make a higher level of art with the out of animation here, which I love that he was bold enough to try to do so early on. And there's a lot of like creative technical tricks that 
I think they had to figure out for this film that would come in very handy later on. Yeah. But in the end, on the whole, I have a hard time sitting through the entire thing. As much as I do like That's it. And as much lots of, as you can say about the good stuff? You're already on the bad? I, I'm just be like, just... Just, I'm just admitting it. Like, there's lots of individual segments and uh, sequences in Fantasia that I just love, and it's still just really. Do you want to highlight them specifically? Because we need some specificity at this point. Like the, uh, like the whole, all the different pieces of the Nutcracker Suite are just absolutely beautiful and technically pretty, quite impressive as well with the effects animation that they did. So the, the, uh, the thistles and the um, mushrooms and the. Yeah, yeah, the uh, and the fairies, kind of like changing of seasons, all the, that. Uh, was it the, were the sexy fish? But other uh, the, the sexy fish. Yes, were in se- the sexy suite. fish was in the Nutcracker Suite as well. Mm. The, uh, I mean, the Sorcerer's Apprentice features a complete reinvention of how Mickey Mouse Mouse's design looks. Yeah, and, 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 uh, big, until Fantasia, folks, Mickey Mouse had these sort of blank black pupil eyes, and he just had this sort of like really super like happy face. I think it was mostly white. And then the, yeah, it, but basically Fantasia gave him the sort of the more fleshy-toned face, the white eyes with the black pupils, and thus much more expressiveness. Yeah. And, and I can still, I will watch the entire thing through and be just thinking the whole time, wow, looking at that and just the craft on display and just some of the beautiful imagery and just, and, and the music as well. It's just very, it's a very interesting and, uh, Stimulating oh, well, hang on, experience. you can't say it's interesting. That's uh, one of the no-nos. Uh, right. Oh, that's right. It's, a, it's just a... Fascinating? Uh, no, sure. that's just another way of saying interesting. If you We're running out of words. the sin of using the tone interesting. <laughs> no, it's just a great experience overall, which is what he was trying to create, just a really new kind of experience that someone could go into a theater and hear hear the music, not just coming from kind of a tinny mono speaker behind the behind the screen, but actually make it sound like the symphony is actually right there with you. Like, this was almost more this was more for music people almost than for visual people like it's to help the visual people experience and appreciate symphony the way people who would just go to a symphony on like anyway just the helping them to appreciate it the same way they do and i think it's successful in that regard like i I think it's very like i really appreciate what he was trying to do and i enjoy it just in a technical sense but in terms of just as a viewer like coming back to it i'm always very very into it until around the halfway point where it just starts my attention just starts to drift and it's always usually the rite of spring that starts losing me interesting because that's one of my favorite bits of it but as soon as the rite of spring's done it's like oh another hour yeah and, it's yeah. it is a long film too that's the other thing it's at it's least two, two hours. hours and five minutes and it is a butt numbing two hours and five minutes didn't they make it make them cut it down for um for later seconds. release they slashed it down to 84 minutes later releases did definitely kind of strip some stuff down and and cut out maybe the uh inter the little interstitial sequences with As the guy the, the talking, talking about the music before it happened. that might yeah. actually be a big thing about it because he's explaining the technical side and it's supposed to be like sort of like drawing you in but it it seems like a lecture well there's plenty of people who like the sound of a sound wave well there's if, if you look over here then there's it's it's just so stilted it, it, it remi- I feel like I'm being taught, and nobody engages when they feel far too much like they're being, uh, they're be- someone's attempting to teach them something. Yeah, you know I, I think I've- that's borrowed from. Sorry, th- I think that's borrowed from. Like, if I'm not mistaken, that's how 
symphonies were often handled, there would be a person who would kind of be doing some speaking between yeah. the different pieces. So, like, I can understand why that would be brought in, but it, like Fantasia as a whole, like, it is, in terms of just raw, like, interest level and engagement and appealing to people, it is it is much easier to let, for your attention to drift. It does not keep you, like, locked in and focused nearly as much as later type releases would be. I think Fantasia 2000 kind of attempted to address that as well, like, by trying to be much more engaging minute to minute and tell a lot more stories rather than kind of general imagery tales and things like that. I think a way that I would absolutely love to see this, because I have to say, I adore Fantasia. I, it's one of my favorite Disney's. Um, and I don't know whether that's to do with the fact that, uh, to put it in context, I was given the VHS when I was about 12 or 13, something like that. This was what got me into classical music. Um, and if I had the opportunity to watch it in the same setup as, you know how they do the, the video game music concerts? Yeah. Where they have an actual orchestra playing the music and then you have that the visuals up awesome. on the screen. That would be amazing, having a, having the music actually live um, and then the visuals on in the background. Um, it, it's quite hard for me to choose my favourite segment because there are so many of these that I love. Um, but uh, I would say probably either um, the Nutcracker Suite one, I adore, uh, and also the Pastoral Symphony, which I know oh, yeah. sets your teeth on edge, Alex. I like that one too. So. <laughs> Centaurs. It is the centaurs. I mean, I, I I was was and still am very big into uh, Greek and Roman myth and and the imagery that that it was using that was kind of synced up with that really really clicked for me. Yes, a lot of it is is very simplistic and very saccharine, but for some reason that I find it very difficult to put my finger on, it just works for me. I like abstract. Um, I like abstract poetry, I like abstract art, and this was, for me, one of the first times I'd seen abstract film. Um, so it really appealed to me on that basis, too. I really appre still appreciate Fantasia as well. Just like I, I, I remember being a kid and having the VHS as well, I think being sick at home and basically like watching this on loop practically for a day. I don't... Maybe I was delirious or something, but <laughs> I... You would be after watching it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was just super into it. And I still, like, every time I get the chance, like, I'm always happy to sit down and watch it again, even though I know I'm gonna, my attention's going to kind of start drifting kind of toward the halfway point. And by the time we get to Night on Bald Mountain, I will definitely be enjoying it. But then as soon as it starts getting to the Ave Maria, then I'll start, just, oh, come on. It's like, finish, finish. hell is more interesting than heaven. That's just, well, it's, and it's also just one long, slow panning shot of lights, which is very beautiful, but it, it, it goes on for like at least five minutes. And I know now that like technically that would have been a nightmare to create. That would have been like it took them ten, days to film it. Apparently. Yeah. Ten guys with a multiplane camera going like just frame by frame, o like over and over for days on end. And it screwed up like two or three times when they had to start over t to oh. the point where they were just sleeping in there for like, and if they had like a few days before the premiere to get it done and they were like i know like technically i know that was a nightmare to create but still like just in terms of engagement just as a film i definitely it does definitely lose me at a certain point i love the symbolic use of Strav stravinsky himself uh, um the the guy who did the rider spring uh the the dinosaur bit folks um when this was originally uh played to the public there were riots because 
people that were expecting a nice symphony you could listen to like the pastoral symphony and go ah this is nice and sweet and blah 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 but what instead it's discordant and it does things that you wouldn't expect and eventually it challenged people so much that they got up in their top hats and started kicking the crap out of each other and but it's it parallels with today's twitter society of of elitism as well because there were a lot of sort of the uh uh, the the bohemians in the audience were like yes we've come here to see something was really challenging and then they were getting it was it was almost like these two parts of the audience were arguing with each other over the music itself and kind of ignoring what was going on hmm that's oddly relevant and uh, the, the, the fact that, they, that Walt actually had the balls to use uh, Stravinsky while the guy was still alive and able to complain about it um, and actually put something that challenging in the movie just sort of it, it lays down Look, this is what we're going to uh, be doing. Walt even wanted to finish on that one. So sort of leave everyone, like, with the world basically being destroyed and devoid of life. And, right, that's your lot. Catch you guys later. Come back and see Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, it they was... said, no, make it the end of the first act instead. It was originally not intended to finish on the, the destruction of everything, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was supposed it was to be something on. else. It was going to be the, the the stage of the bringing man into the world. Mm. But uh, I think that that section went on for long enough as it was, and it made more sense to... I mean, as it is, that was hugely influential on... Well, for a start, it was the first proper dinosaurs rendered on screen in a serious way. I mean, there was, uh, like, one of the first animations ever is Nelly the Dinosaur. But this was sustained, and it was showing them in their own environment, albeit like completely scientifically inaccurate in terms of like the stegosaurus and the t-rex never fought because they were like 16 million years apart um but it's it's not like the flintstones they they portray it at least as a relatively coherent world and that is at least able to uh, have a major influence on textbooks and and the 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 way that dinosaurs were seen and the the way that ever it starts off with this very apologetic this is what science believes and is believed by some other people don't want to offend anybody and that's why they stopped after the dinosaurs bit because they yeah that if we carry on and go into the evolution of man then we're going to upset a lot of people who are like nope yeah that would have uh the film failed enough as it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, of these five, it's, before we get to the, the, the wartime ones, it's it's my least favorite, definitely, because even though I don't like Snow White, it is at least short. Um, but Fantasia, if, if you actually have to sit me down to watch that thing, I have to kiss goodbye to a big old chunk of the day. It is definitely long, and I, I more kind of appreciate it, just what it is and represents, and that I appreciate that it exists and so early on in animation feature history, but it, it's definitely not the first Disney film that I will go to when I want to watch a Disney film. Had it been successful, they were going to do more of them repeatedly every few years. They were going to sort of add to this library of Fantasia. And that's um, kind of, I think it might have been more interesting in that way, too, just as like as an experience, which is what Walt was kind of trying to create, something yeah. that kept on existing but also grew and it would go Maybe on once towards... every ten years so it sort of passes to each generation gets one. Yeah, and it would come back with new pieces and segments every time and it, I mean that could have been a pretty interesting side thing for Disney to be to have had and been doing and I guess they kind of did it in a cheaper poppy way later but for the next ten years but but yeah, I mean that would have been interesting but yeah yeah. 
I said uh, interesting again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I find it interesting that they were all upset about the possibility of alienating creationists, yet they had to be told to take Sunflower out. Uh, yeah, this is another one. We'll, we'll talk about it briefly because Disney dealt with this one themselves. Um, uh, there was a, a character called Sunflower in the Centaur section during the Pastoral Symphony who was an obviously... Uh, black, obviously exaggeratedly uh, racially featured character uh, who was a serving maid to the white-ass girls. And uh, her name was Sunflower, and she didn't really get to play with the rest of them. Although she was sort of in on it, but she was, you know, there was a, there was a general cast, and she was below that cast. Uh, although, interestingly, you pointed out, well, how come those zebra girls are allowed in it? But if you look at the two side by side in terms of the zebra girls with... The um, context is entirely with different. Bacchus. You showed me the picture of Sunflower and I was like, oh, that's but, why. No. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. that's it. They, they, they very carefully and delicately reframed the film because they, you know, it was brought to their attention uh, in later years and they were like, yeah, you know what? That's absolutely right. Let's just... And, and cut out Sunflower. And you can see that sequence elsewhere and you can read about it and it was something that they had uh, addressed so um, it was delicately handled in a way that it wasn't revisionist history and let us let us never speak of Sunflower again absolutely yeah, yeah. It, it's when when you're dealing with something like that I think it is uh, it's positive that they can remove it from the medium and remove it from the entertainment context yet not try to scrub it from history and say let's just pretend that never happened in other more choppy cuts in between that time um, she was it simply they cut the bits with her on screen because they didn't have the finesse to be able to reframe it so it would basically jump in the music and it was really patchy so uh, I'm, I'm very glad they were able to do that in an elegant way later but it's one of the the signs that at the time they just didn't know that this was going to be something that would really be straightforward uh, insulting to people at the time and moving forwards yeah it's and there's lots of little bit like it's just not not an awareness which obviously yeah. it's which characterizes the time like they're all it was the same year on. as racist duck yeah and i mean i mean even still within fantasia you kind of have some sort of visually stereotypy sort of characterizations of mushrooms or other flowers in the uh like kind of little very russian <laughs> flower is a bunch of very Chinese uh, like kind of Asian stereotype yeah, bowing the mushrooms. mushrooms. Uh, yeah, like it's it's or like another thing that my wife Carrie pointed out even in the um, uh, even in the uh, Greek mythology section that uh, I'd never noticed before. There was just a small subtle thing, and I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be read this way, but just of all the little centaurs that get together, it's always ones of the same color that like are like with light yep, yep. I'm yeah absolutely yeah no we noticed the pink that one's got to be with the pink one the orange one's got to be with the orange one and there's a blue one on the on his own and he's sad well luckily there's a blue girl for you yeah that was yeah, their which... opportunity to have sunflower you know actually yeah maybe which... he finds something that he sees sunflower and goes well she's great yeah but but, but it's yeah. just you know it's they get a as with many white of these blue girl <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. As with many of these early Disney films, you will see almost in every single one just some small little. I wish that wasn't in there. <laughs> I, bet, I bet they. I bet they do too. Yes. 
I wish I was more familiar with ex- with other films of this era so I could know like what kind of how they compare and like uh, if some of the things to do with kind of the pacing and the way that these stories are told here was just reminiscent of how other films were at the time too or if it was a particular way that Disney was telling stories at this time. Well, look at the uh, the 1937 in film, the top 16 films. Number one, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Saratoga, never heard of it. Starring Clark Gable and Gene Harlow. That was the second highest grossing film of, of 1937. 100 Men and a Girl, seen a film like that. Topper, Wee Willy Winky, Stella Dallas, In Old Chicago, The Prince and the Pauper, The Good Earth, The Life of Amelia Zola, Lost Horizon, Dead End, The Hurricane, Heidi... Personal, that's the Shirley Temple one. That's the only one I've heard of these. Personal Property yeah. and Conquest. So, really, we're talking about films that have now disappeared in terms of relevance. Stella Dallas. Yeah. I've never heard anybody mention the film Stella Dallas in my entire life. The sixth highest grossing film of 1937, starring wow. Barbara Stanwyck. Bear in mind, though, you got not too long after this, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah. And that contained deliberate portrayal of people of colour and that was not what you would call wildly sympathetic. But flip it, for 1940, Pinocchio was the 28th highest grossing film. Wow. And what came before it? Boomtown, Northwest Mountain Police, The Great Dictator. Okay, so that was Charlie Chaplin. The Philadelphia okay. Story. Okay, so that's Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. <laughs> the Grapes of Wrath. Okay, so The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> but you see, now we're into the ones that, that we was, actually remember. That was Re- a good year. Rebecca. Okay, so Lawrence Olivia. Strike Up the Band, Northwest Passes, The Fighting 69th, The Seahawk, Tim Pan Alley, Santa Fe Trail, Andy Hardy Beats, Debutante, Kitty Foyle, My Favorite Wife, Virginia City, Road to Singapore. No one's ever mentioned Road to Singapore to me. I Love You Again, All This in Heaven Too. And Comrade X. Okay, but a couple of those were kind of important. Yeah. <laughs> but not as important as Pinocchio, probably. Some of them you could make an argument for, for sure, but yeah. yeah. So to finish off Fantasia, I can't believe we haven't mentioned these properly yet, but The Sorcerer's Apprentice, The Dance of the Hours, and Night on Bald Mountain, arguably the three best. Let's do uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice first. Iconic. It'd be a good word to describe it. And probably the most coherent... Uh, Narrative-driven. Most dir- yeah, narrative-driven piece of the whole bit. It's, it's a little short film... Yeah, with, it's, it's the most relatable as well. Yeah. You got, you know, everyone's been a kid, and Bicky is basically in the role of a kid who has dreams of being a great big sorcerer. And like we've mentioned before, it brought Mickey Mouse back to the fore with a new redesign and in a big yeah, way. Yeah. And also, I suppose it, it might have um, the most catchy, memorable music as well. I mean, you could, you could play any other piece of music, possibly aside from Bald Mountain, um, and. The average person around the world, you say, was this in Fantasia? They go, I think so. But are you playing The Sorcerer's <laughs> Apprentice? Yep. Straight yeah, away. for sure. And and it, it's also telling that the iconic imagery, the, the thing that'll be on the cover art of most Fantasia things will be Mickey and that Sorcerer's Apprentice get up on yeah. top of the mountain, orchestrating the stars and the waves. Yeah. Which, that that is iconic Fantasia if there is an image. Absolutely. And that wizards come back in a lot of little sideways too. Like, uh, it's, he's in the Fantasia video game that just came out. He's also in Kingdom Hearts pretty frequently. I think they've retroactively named him Yen Sid, which is oh, cute. Wow. 
Disney backwards. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. I got that. Sharon's good with words. <laughs> Me? <laughs> Not so good with the words. Um, <laughs> so, like, he opposes Disney at all corners. Apparently. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Dance of the Hours is the one with the uh, the creepy crocodiles and the... Um, I think it's sort of... It's made up for by the fact that the uh, hippopotamus is well up for it. In that, you know, she's... What? No, what? Seriously, because uh, he chases her, but she likes being chased, so that's okay. Is that okay? They are a bit. Yeah, they are a bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's got a great kind of sprightly feel to it, and there's also something extremely visually appealing about a, and and this kind of makes up for the whole chasing back and forth and the slightly more creepy undertones. The the coordinated ballet of a crocodile trying to keep a hippopotamus who's being very dainty aloft. There's some great kind of working with uh, obvious visual mass there. I, I think the, the greatest point of humour for me is probably the tutus because they're mm. just so yeah. tiny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's the point? You may as well just up come in right under the, the arms. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, undeniably, there's a, a slight uh, air of like you know. As soon as the uh, um, is it the flamingos that sort of like start this one off, or I forget. Uh, I think. No, hang on, they're not flamingos. Ostriches, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ostriches started it off. At one point, there's elephants that eventually. Oh yeah, ostriches and elephants started off, and then uh, kind of after they have their whole bit, there's I. Is there a great wind that blows them away, and then suddenly there's hippopotamuses and crocodiles. Yes. Uh, to be Not honest, folks, we, we've come back to this film after nearly a year, and we haven't seen it since. <laughs> Suffice it to say, not quite as narrative-driven as Sorcerer's Apprentice. Indeed, yeah. Uh, but Night on Bald Mountain has some incredibly evocative imagery, uh, an incredible piece of music for a start. I mean, this is this one will kind of stick with you, and uh, the uh, unabashed. Um, juxtaposition of, of the, that, that sort of uh, devilish imagery of hell from the pit and the eerie uh, visual effects they use for the sort of the floating skeletons um, and then the sort of the, the even though as you said earlier Dan is uh, it's, it's, it's quite but boring the the, the Ave Maria <laughs> section um, it's very peaceful and it's kind of the, the palate cleanser you need after the, the chaos of Bald Mountain it is a lovely, serene way to end this big, long journey that the film has been, even, too. Just a nice, slow bit. But if you are sitting there, and especially in a theater, as a nice kind of uh, way to bring the energy down after that big, bald mountain piece, definitely. If you're just sitting kind of on the couch watching, and you're two hours in and watching the long, excruciating to create, but also very slow, samey shot panning across the field yeah, with yeah. Avi Maria, then yeah, you're ready for it to be done. Yeah. But uh, is it Chernobyl, the uh, the name of the, 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 the yes. devil in this? Yeah, yeah that's him. That's, again, another iconic character. Yeah, some lovely animation on him just feeling very... Hmm. Especially this early on in Disney. We're going to get to Disney films where just uh, the anatomy of human characters feeling like... Uh, feeling the musculature and the weight and the form of the human body is something that is just taken for granted it's it's in every film and every shot but especially in this film with the dramatic underlighting and everything else there is a level of craft and art and artistry to Chernabog at this particular character mm. that is 
and the ha- and the hand work as well, which is really hard to do as an animator. Hands are really <laughs> complex. That is just exceptionally well made. It's very beautiful. And actually, now that I think about it, one of my favorite moments in the entire because most of Fantasia was a snooze fest for me, but one of my favorite moments is uh, when Bald Mountain comes to a close, and it takes a while because basically the the clock um, chimes, and then uh, Chernobog is uh, it does the Nosferatu kind of ah, it is dawn now we must go back to our pit, um, and there's that just very slow kind of receding of the shadows as the, uh, the the bell carries on tolling and it's, it's a very kind of somber but peaceful resignation and, and re- restoring of the balance before the Ave Maria starts up that's it's a I, I, I like this the feel of this moment it's um come to think of it I do too now that you yeah. mentioned it and like yeah. give it words that that is a really nice little uh, uh I can't think of a better word. You, Addressing you of the uh, the midpoint of the pendulum swing. Yeah, it's the it's the nice, easy, like soft. It's there's a softness to the transition after mm. after such a harsh and loud and frightening mm. piece. Are we going to end on a piece? Is that going to be the last word in Fantasia? There you have it, folks. <laughs> long pause and then peace peace <laughs> well, it, it, you, peace. you've ended it too, you've concluded it too well look you can't end on peace unless you first say I'm about this bitch <laughs> <laughs> drops mic hang on what Sharon's got some more it does capture that feeling of the hour before dawn or the hour yeah. before uh, nightfall very well that sort of bridge moment mm. when not necessarily just that bad things are starting to draw back, but just the idea that things are wrapping to a close, but everything kind of has to come to a settled yeah. point before the, the good and the light can come back in again. Yeah. 